listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. And thank you so much for spending some of your time with us this hour. Oh my goodness, we begin with Usmeka. It's a deal! It's a deal, ladies and gentlemen. An agreement has been reached on a North American free trade deal with Mexico's president telling reporters that Canadian, American, and Mexican representatives will sign this deal in Mexico City. Our Deputy Prime Minister, Christopher Freeland, is in Mexico City to represent Canada. It's a deal! And we begin this hour in question period here in Ontario. Here is what happens when Doug Ford stands up in the House to answer a friendly question. How this works is in the question period, you have the opposition members, they ask some questions, and then your own side, the government side, gets to ask what's known as a softball. It's basically, could you please tell me, uh, Premier, how, how you are so awesome, is generally the tone of these sort of questions. So after a morning where the NDP asked the Premier, a number of direct questions, and he punts it off to some other minister. Then the uh, the government side, somebody on the government bench, stands up, lobs in this softball, and this happens. Questions to the Premier. Well, now, that is a rousing bit of applause for the Premier, and that is not just your standard-issue progressive conservatives jumping to their feet with their standing oaths. No, that's actually the opposition side, the NDP, with a rousing cheer, satirical, perhaps, sarcastic, maybe, for the Premier. And his response? Premier to reply. Well, thank you, Mr. Speaker, and I want to thank the opposition for the standing ovation. I know they're doing a great job. Thank you. Ah, oh, that, that's right. That's <laughs> nice. It's nice. It's nice when everybody gets along. It's nice when people get along and we can get a deal, for example. Can we get a deal in our education system? It's a deal! Can that happen? Well, it doesn't look like we're any closer to it. Ontario Public Elementary teachers ramp up their work-to-rule campaign as they continue contract talks with the government. EDFO says educators aren't going to plan any new field trips. They won't distribute letters or memos from schools and boards. The union says it will introduce this new phase in an attempt to increase pressure on the government. Meanwhile, OSSTF, the high school teachers will begin a one-day strike, or actually will hold a one-day strike tomorrow. Not all school boards, but many of the school boards, including here in Toronto, teachers will be off the job if we do not get a deal in time. Harvey Bischoff is the president of OSSTF, and I am pleased to welcome him back to the program. Hi, Harvey. Good afternoon, Alan. Do we have any negotiation dates? Are you actually talking at all? Uh, we actually haven't had any dates since we met for uh, four days straight last, uh, you know, week ago last weekend and Monday, Tuesday, uh, during which time the government brought forward not a single new proposal. So we've advised the mediator of our availability um, and uh, and have had no invitation to return. To but the, the minister is all is saying that he's willing to go back to the table as long as you go back to the table. Where's the disconnect here? Well, we're in the hands of the mediator. You know, there is a mediator at the table um, whose uh, whose job is to determine an appropriate time to bring the parties together to try to move forward. Um, we've given we've given that mediator our availability, and we wait to hear back. 
I want to go through some of the things that the government is saying, because I think it's sometimes instructive to look at a message track on one side and then play it against the, uh, the track on the other side. So your response to the following. Here is uh, Stephen Lecce, the Minister of Education. You mentioned you said that the government hasn't brought anything to the table. Here is the Minister of Education saying precisely the same thing about you. The fact that we've made a major move on provincial classroom averages from 28 going down to 25, and likewise for online learning from a mandate of 4 to 2, actually demonstrates that we are listening to those we... uh, that we govern, and obviously our objective through the process is to demonstrate that we're trying to be a reasonable force at the table. There needs to be reciprocated by the unions who've to date made no moves on any of their positions, particularly, if I could be specific, OSSTF, who's seen no move at all since this process began, and they've not moved from their first tabling months ago. Harvey, your response to that? So what the minister describes as a major move is a major move in the wrong direction. Last year, class size averages were 22. This year, they're 22.5, unilaterally imposed by them and by the minister's own words. And they want to raise them in the future to 25. Uh, so, so whatever they were saying before, uh, the fact that it's now a proposal of 25, with accompanying uh, language to eliminate any, any language that creates class size maxima anywhere in the province. So any class could be as large as the number of kids you could jam into it, um, you know, as long as that average was reached. Uh, he describes that as a major move. This year, there are zero mandatory e-learning courses. He wants to force two mandatory e-learning uh, courses on students, uh, even though he has absolutely no evidence to demonstrate that that's uh, productive, that that's in any way, uh, you know, contributes to a quality education for students. So his major moves are moves in the wrong direction. We have moved. Um, uh, you know, there's a number of areas of language where, we've, where we have uh, presented different proposals over time. But I will admit they are not moved towards the government's desire to erode the quality of education. So when it comes to class size, when it comes to e-learning, we're proposing um, status quo to the quality of education we were able to deliver just last year. All right, next up is the issue of cash and the government's position that for you and for your union, it's all about the money. The preference of the teachers union for OSSTF specifically increasingly is if we do not get an ancillary, an additional $750 million on top of what the $750 we're offering is we're going to strike. I think 100% of parents, an overwhelming plurality would say that's an unreasonable position. Is your position unreasonable and have you lost the support of parents? Uh, so how absolutely disheartening it is for a minister of education of all people to discredit my members' commitment to education quality issues. But you know what else is disheartening is that he can't get his numbers straight even once. So he claims repeatedly that we're looking for $1.5 billion in compensation over the life of the collective agreement. In fact, what we're proposing uh, is... Uh, $200 million cost, different order of magnitude. And what it is, is so that my members could keep up with the rate of inflation. After seven years of falling behind inflation, we're saying they should be able to keep up. And I include amongst those the people that this minister never, ever talks about. And those are my support staff members who earn on average $38,000 a year, haven't kept up with inflation for seven years, and he thinks that, that they should continue to bear the brunt of this government's fiscal approach. On that, when asked about that by our Travis Danaraj and about those educational workers, the minister responded by saying what we're dealing with here and who we are negotiating with is OSSTF, who represent teachers, and then he characterized the amount that teachers make this way. 
For OSSTF, let, let the record be clear, the education ministry data, an average income for an OSSTF teacher is $92,000. They are the second highest paid in the nation. They've received increases over time uh, for the last 15 years in the former government overwhelmingly. And what our message is, for people who make north of $90,000, second highest paid in the system, with obviously strong benefit plans and a variety of other uh, enhancements, we think it's reasonable to offer a $750 million increase. Let's begin with that 90-plus K uh, year number, Harvey. Well, why don't we begin, I mean, I'll come back to that, Alan, and I'm happy to answer that directly, but, but let's begin with the fact that he explicitly uh, denies that we, that we negotiate on, in, uh, on behalf of support staff. He knows we do, and yet he goes out and says the opposite because he doesn't like that story. Um, but he is absolutely aware, as he's admitted elsewhere, we negotiate on behalf of support staff. Uh, well over 15,000 of them who earn an average of $38,000. So his refusal to admit that when questioned by uh, Travis, uh, I think, tells a story as well. That $92,000 number, again, it's wrong. Um, again, an example where they can't get their figures straight. The average OSSTF uh, teacher uh, income is 86000 um, But even that should be put in context. Over a lifetime of earnings, um, uh, a teacher makes about the same net of the cost of, of their education because they have six years of post-secondary education. Um, over, the, over, the, over a career, they make about the same as a skilled tradesperson. Now, skilled tradespeople earn their money and, and uh, absolutely no, uh, don't begrudge them one cent of that. Um, but why a teacher shouldn't be worth about the same, I don't know. Where do we go from here? It seems that if I can characterize it as bad blood... It seems that both sides are further apart, and the rhetoric is getting stronger. For parents, this is increasingly concerning. Yeah, it's concerning to me, too, and I've seen the minister um, now inflaming the situation by, by trying to discredit my members' commitment to education, uh, by demonizing them uh, in a variety of ways, and that's really beneath um, what a what a minister of the crown should be doing but you know whether i like the minister or the minister likes me is entirely beside the point parents have said overwhelmingly they don't larger don't want larger class sizes they don't want mandatory learning they want their their children to have the support from support staff that give them a chance uh, at success in the system and i would ask the minister to finally listen to his own consultation that he tried to keep buried um, and uh, find a way, a path forward that way. But my last question, Harvey, is, is if the government is successful in turning this into a conversation about money, you will lose parental support, will you not? Um, you know, uh, I, I, I suppose that's possible, Alan, um, but the fact remains, uh, you know, if the government comes and talks to us about, if the, if if the government is prepared to meet those quality of education issues, and I guess we're going to have an interesting discussion at the table. They've demonstrated uh, absolutely so far that they're not willing to go there. They want to erode the quality of education. Parents get that. They're speaking out about it. Um, and, uh, and that's the voice that I think he needs to listen to at this point. Harvey Bischoff is the president of the OSSTF, teachers in many parts of this province planning a one-day walkout tomorrow if there is no deal and there are no talks scheduled, so that looks extremely unlikely. Let's just wish for this, Harvey. It's a deal! If only we could get that. I appreciate you being on the program. Thanks, Alan. The United States, Mexico, 
Now confirming an agreement has been reached on a new North American free trade deal. Canada on board as well. That means all three nations are set to ratify that deal. Usmeca. Deputy Prime Minister Krista Freeland is in Mexico City today. She's expected to join trade officials from both the U.S. and Mexico to formally endorse those changes. Now, this may be top of the news tonight, the national newscast, but I'll tell you, south of the border, it does not even register whatsoever. That's because House Democrats announced this morning two articles of impeachment against U.S. President Donald Trump. Abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. This push toward a historic vote over charges that he corrupted the U.S. election process and endangered national security. The Speaker, Nancy Pelosi, flanked by the chairman of the Impeachment Inquiry Committee, stood in the Capitol. She called this a quote-unquote solemn act, and voting is expected in a matter of days in the Judiciary Committee and by Christmas in the full House. If the House votes to impeach Donald Trump, he will join Andrew Johnson and Bill Clinton. He is the only other presidents to be sanctioned this way since American independence. Trump swiftly responded in capital letters a tweet, Witch Hunt was the tweet. The White House has said the charges are baseless, and his, re- uh, and his re-election campaign called them, quote, rank partisanship, unquote. In outlining the charges, Democrats say they have no choice but to act because Trump has shown a pattern of behavior that, if left unchecked, poses risks to the Democratic process ahead of the 2020 election. Reggie Cicchini is with Global News and is in Washington for us. Hi, Reggie. Good afternoon, sir. Washington is an insular town at the best of times. Is there any oxygen in the room that is not impeachment? Uh, no, this is the this is the talk of the town right now. It's the talk of the country. And, you know, you're mentioning NAFTA off the top. And I even had to stop for that quick second to think to myself, right, NAFTA is something that's happening in Mexico right now, but it just doesn't register, uh, despite the fact that it impacts so many millions of Americans down here. The only thing people can think about and talk about right now is is conduct that the president, uh, you know, committed in the Oval Office and what the potential consequences could be. And in terms of timing, we are expecting before the new year that the House, which is dominated by Democrats, will vote on this? And that's what the ultimate goal is. Nancy Pelosi has always said she doesn't want to rush things through. She wants to be able to do things uh, the proper way and the way that they're supposed to be done. Now she says the evidence has been laid out there. It's been presented to the judiciary. They'll be able to vote on it and ultimately have that vote taken uh, by Christmas, which puts it in the same timeline uh, as the impeachment inquiry into Bill Clinton. So there will be no argument that Democrats were you know, quick handed and tried to rush this through. And then what happens, obviously it has to go towards the Senate, and there the Republicans dominate, and it is expected to just simply wither there, but what's the play? Well, essentially, yes. It's going to punt its way into the Senate's hand sometime in January. The Senate's already cleared their entire month calendar, so we know that they're they're planning to deal with this for at least something of two to four weeks once we head into 2020. Uh, the problem is, is that there's some infighting in the Republican Party right now to how long they actually want this to go. There are some Republicans saying, let's rip the Band-Aid off quick, let's get this done, put it to a vote, and, and move on with our lives. But there are some saying, let's drag the process out. Let's bring people before the Senate to testify, and and, uh, you know, it's it's kind of a six of one, half dozen of the other as to whether or not, you know, shorter or quicker is going to work in favor of the Republicans or potentially allow the Democrats to build a better defense case. When we look at block caps and witch hunt, how much of that resonates with Trump's base? 
Well, I mean, look, the president's base has stayed loyal through uh, his campaign when he was accused of a number of things. They have stayed loyal to him through the presidency when he has both legislated and not legislated uh, at a significant rate. Uh, They don't move. They listen to what the president has to say, and they listen to what those loyal to him in the Republican Party have to say. The thing you have to remember is the president used witch hunt during the entire Robert Mueller investigation. Sure, the president was let off the hook at the end of that investigation, but a number of people people that were close to him are now sitting in jail and will likely be sitting in jail for a good number of time. So was it a witch hunt? Probably not, because at the end of the day, there was wrongdoing found into what President Trump had done uh, with the Russian investigation. Now we're looking at Ukraine, the president calling it a witch hunt again. All they're doing is slamming process. Nobody's actually talking about what actually happened and what he's being impeached for. In terms of Republican senators, much is being made about whether or not there will be a schism within the Republicans. What's your sense is it wobbly or are those that are willing to back Trump and just stay with Trump to the bitter end? Is there going to be a majority of them? I mean, let's look to see what happens in the House first. If Democrats are able to pull any House Republicans into their rank and vote uh, in favor of impeachment, that could be a sign for the Senate to watch for. It's not likely going to happen, meaning that senators are likely going to uh, remain in their loyal line behind President Trump, particularly since a number of them are going to be up for re-election next year and become vulnerable if they go against the president. We know what happens when the president takes the stage at a rally and potentially tries to uh, 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 go for somebody who's up for re-election, ultimately that person, most of the time, uh, ends up winning. So there are Republicans who are going to fear stepping out of line because it puts their f- political futures uh, at risk. Uh, but, you know, we need we need to wait to see what happens over the next couple of weeks because Republicans often change their tune depending on what public perception is of the president at that moment. Reggie Cicchini with Global News in Washington. Always great to talk to you, Reggie. Appreciate you being on the program. Thank you. And that soap opera will grind its way forward. And I think that uh, I think we can already expect that the Republican leadership in the Senate will vote for longer, not shorter, because I think that it helps eventually on some weird way. You know, the Donald Trump theory of governing, which is the bed of nails, which is if you just lie down on one nail, it pierces your skin. If you put a whole bunch of nails all closely together, You don't feel a thing. Let's take you to London, Ontario, where the 39-year-old man is now facing charges after he allegedly stole more than a million dollars from an elderly woman. The London Police Service is offering not too many details about this, but it's an alleged fraud that they say took place between 2013 and 2018 and resulted in the woman losing $1.25 million. They say the suspect borrowed money under false pretenses. He's charged with fraud over $5,000. He was arrested on Friday, will appear in court this week, and police there urging the public to educate themselves on the many techniques that would-be fraudsters use to swindle their victims. As we said, not a lot of details from London police, but here's a little bit more from Constable Sandasha Bao. One of these particular incidents was in relation to Bitcoin fraud, so asking this woman to deposit money through Bitcoin And the other incident was more of a false pretense where somebody provided false information to somebody in exchange for money. 
Now, add that to this from Global News back in October. Two people have been arrested in Peel region for what Peel police are referring to as an emergency scam targeting elderly Polish-speaking victims. The individuals would claim to be in some kind of urgent or embarrassing trouble, advise the victim that they didn't want any other family members to know, and police say the suspects would call the victim pretending to be a grandchild, a child, an extended family member, an old friend perhaps from Poland. And police there, warning suspects, could use various excuses, including being in a car accident, being arrested for drunk driving, being trapped in another country, unable to leave. All of those sort of things used to dupe elderly citizens out of their money. Dave Perry is Global News Radio's crime and security analyst and joins me on the program to talk more about protecting our elderly citizens and those that we might be seeing over the Christmas holidays and talk to them about what they should look out for. Dave, always great to have you on the program. Good to be here. So in terms of, you know, confidence scams, is there something we're seeing, that a new trend that our elderly citizens, you know, our moms and dads, our aunts and uncles that we might be seeing over the holidays, we should warn them about? Well, the trend that we'll see getting closer to Christmas is that there'll be even more attempts. You know, people like this get more desperate as Christmas comes along to uh, <laughs> to meet the demands of, of their end, end year numbers, and they start really putting the pressure on. And, uh, of course, elders are always a target because, uh, in some cases, they're far more vulnerable and easier to convince that the scam is real. So it's, it's high alert, and you described so many of them that we've heard about recently on the telephone. And, uh, and I can tell you that uh, there are more and more scams coming out every day. So just buyer beware, extreme high alert, and never, ever transfer money to anybody for under any circumstances until somebody has investigated that for you completely and make sure that you know that it's legitimate. And everyone that you stated at the beginning of your show here is ones where flags should go up right away and nobody should be doing anything. And in in terms of, you know, our parents, it it perhaps is, you know, it's a delicate conversation because you don't want to insult their intelligence, but at the same time, I think it behooves us to mention what you just said, which is the police would never ask you for money. The CRA will not ask you to transfer them money over the phone. That will not happen. Exactly. And I've had those uh, conversations. I'm very fortunate to have both my parents with me, and they are elderly and uh, and therefore vulnerable. <clears throat> but we have had those conversations with them, and I've asked them that anytime somebody calls and they're looking for anything, if they have any doubt at all, to call somebody within the family and, and we'll investigate. And I can tell you, in every single circumstance, it was an attempt for some kind of a, a scam or a fraud. And especially now we see, I mean, I don't know what your phone is like, but mine goes off every other day with some sort of scam on it. And I mean, I have just got to a point where I ignore all of it. I, I'm not certain our parents are, are are so certain about that. When things come up on their phone, they don't, uh, they don't understand or they don't identify it. They don't necessarily automatically think, well, this is a scam. Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised at that as well. And, and I was just sitting with my parents the other night, and their home phone rang, and that should tell you a lot right there. Most of us don't have a home phone. I have a, a cell, and my wife has a cell, but we don't have a home phone, and part of it is for exactly this. And anybody that you know that has a home phone, they said it's just used for constant phishing and scamming attempts anyways. And my parents got a call the other night, and not recognizing the number, they kind of squint and look at it, and they pick up the call anyways. Whereas I, I tell people, and, you know, everybody's got their own personal threshold on this, but I tell people, if you don't 
recognize the phone number. Why are you picking up the call? And I don't, even though I'm in business on my cell phone, when somebody calls, if it's a blocked number and it's not, and except for in a case like this, where I knew you were calling me, I don't pick it up. If it's a number that's not in my, in my contact list and I don't recognize, I don't pick it up. That's why we have voicemail. And 99% of the time when I don't do that, there's either no voicemail or somebody tells me that I'm going to get arrested right away. If I don't call back to the CRA and, and make a hefty deposit into their account. Of course, that's a scam. Dave Perry is Global News Radio's crime insecurity analyst. Always great to have you on the program, David. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Anytime. The situation in New Zealand is just incredible what's happened there. A sixth person has now died following that powerful volcanic eruption on New Zealand's White Island. Eight people are still missing. But in this report by Marcus Moore, he tells of the efforts of recovery are now on hold as police say it is too dangerous for crews to land on the island and to remove bodies. One of the key questions being asked is why were people allowed on the island after the alert level had been raised earlier in the month because of increased volcanic activity? And one paramedic who flew to the island described what he saw as being like a scene out of the Chernobyl miniseries, ash covering every inch of the ground. It was a horrific scene in a a place that for decades has been a worldwide attraction terrifying and why is it that no one was told you know what there's an increased risk because i think i think a great number of tourists would say you know i think i'll pass on the volcano island if there's an increased risk of it blowing up meanwhile in china china is hinting at upcoming trials now for the two canadian citizens who have been held there for a year on vague national security charges Justice Minister David Lametti saying that winning their release is a federal government concern. That's good to hear. But Lametti says it bothers him that Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig have not yet have a- had access in China to legal counsel. I know they've had consular access, but it troubles me uh, that they haven't had any access to legal counsel. But, uh, but as I said, we, we, have, uh, we have had the Prime Minister uh, and now two Ministers of Foreign Affairs who've made it their top priority. That is Canada's Justice Minister reacting this morning. The detentions of the two men are widely believed to be an attempt to pressure this country to release Meng Wanzhou, who is a top executive at the Chinese tech giant Huawei. Beijing, as you recall, detained Kovrig and Spavor one year ago, days after Meng was arrested in Canada at the request of the United States. Meanwhile, in sports, Raptors fans with a ticket to see Kawhi's Leonard, Kawhi Leonard's return tonight, or pardon me, tomorrow night, Wednesday night, to Scotiabank Arena, are being urged to show up early for a special ring ceremony. <laughs> <laughs> Last year's NBA Finals MVP returning to Toronto. He has not played here since he led the Raptors to the championship last season. It's a rare 7 p.m. start to accommodate the ASPN broadcast schedule in the U.S., so keep that in mind. Raptors, the organization telling you ticket holders to be in your seats by 6.45 for that ceremony when they present Leonard with his ring. It's funny, I was speaking about this with my son this morning, and I asked him the question, do you think Toronto fans will boo or will they cheer? And he thought about it, and he landed on boo. I'm a fun guy. I think we'll cheer. 
I think this is my this is my guess. Doc Rivers was asked about this. He's the coach of the Clippers, and he he said, "Yeah, you know, if I was Toronto, considering that that guy came here and won a championship, I'd retire his jersey now. Forget about the ring. Put his jersey in the rafters now." If you're interested in seeing the Raptors game on the big screen, there is an event at the Cinesphere tonight. Or pardon me again, it is tomorrow night. I'm, I'm having one of those weeks where I'm one day ahead. It's Wednesday night is the game versus the Clippers. On the 11th, you can join Hoop Talks at the Cinesphere to watch Kawhi return to Toronto. This is the only appearance by the Clippers north of the border. Don't miss the heavyweight tilt matchup on the 80-foot big screen, says the ad for Hoop Talk, Kawhi's return watch party at the Cinesphere on Wednesday as the Clippers return to Toronto. I'm really I'm going to hope that they don't go with load management because he, he you know there's always the load management issue with Kawhi. I think he's playing. I think he'll be playing. Didn't he injure himself last game, though? Well, there is a possibility that he is dealing with a bit of a knee issue. He only played a portion of the game. I think he'll play. Come on, Kawhi, don't do us like that. (laughs) Even if you're hurt, come on. (laughs) Don't do us like that. It's bad enough you... Listen, you you left us. We can handle that. But at least, you know, come back for the reunion party. Don't, Don't be like that, Kawhi. Do you like words? Do you like the speaking? Do you like the different kind of words you can kind of use, maybe? Well, the Merriam-Webster people, you know what they got? They got their 2019 word of the year. It's a pronoun, people. They. (laughs) This is the report on word of the year by Merriam-Webster. It's a common but increasingly mighty and very busy little word. The language mavens at Merriam-Webster declared they the word of the year based on a more than 300% increase in the number of times it's been looked up on the company's website. The spike in they searches started in January with the rise of model Oslo Grace. The Northern Californian identifies as transgender non-binary, walking fashion runways around the world in both men's and women's shows. Merriam-Webster recently added a new definition, reflecting the use of they as relating to a person whose gender identity is non-binary. I'm Ben Thomas. All right, so work that into your memo today. If you're at the office, just work a lot of extra they's in there. Let's move on to your cheating heart, shall we? And cheating is our next topic in this segment. Do you know, here are the stats, recent stats, all about infidelity. This comes from the Journal of Marital and Family Therapy. 57% of men overall admit to committing infidelity at some point in their lives. 54% of women. 22% of married men admit to having an affair at least once during their marriages. 14% of women. From Psychology Today, here's a national sample about infidelity. The results are consistent every time they ask this question. Researchers come back with 10% of spouses admit cheating, that's 12% for men, and 7% for women. Does it have any impact how old you are? Well, according to analysis that the sociologist Nicholas Wolfinger published in 2017, when asked in the survey question, have you ever had sex with someone other than your husband or wife while you were married, Americans older than 55 turned out to be far more adulterous than people younger than 55. 
In fact, people born between 1940 and 1959 were the ones who reported the highest rates of extramarital sex. That is, for those doing the math, people between the ages of 60 and 79 years of age. So now it turns out millennials have actually ruined cheating as well. How about the cash? A 2015 study of about 2,800 people suggested between the ages of 18 and 32, that was who was surveyed, it suggested a person who is completely economically dependent on their spouse is more likely to be unfaithful. That is especially true for a man who relies financially on a woman. About 15% of men who are completely financially dependent on their wives cheat compared to 5% of dependent women. But it is a brave new world out there. This from the New York Post. It used to be that partners discovered cheating by finding incriminating evidence on phone bills, credit card statements, lipstick on the collar. Now, the unfaithful are being caught out on social media. Things like Uber, or person-to-person payments, or find my friends. It's a new world when it comes to getting caught as a cheater. Laura Hensley is a global news online journalist and joins me in studio. You're writing about this today. Why is this top of mind awareness for you? That's a great question. Um, (laughs) It's something we were chatting about in the office, you know, after photos surfaced of Justin Timberlake really cozying up with his co-star, Alicia Wainwright. You know, we were talking about how easy it is to get caught cheating because essentially we're carrying around cameras in our pockets, you know, everywhere we go. So if you're seeing something that could incriminate someone else, you might capture it. And it's just so much easier to get caught. I think of that Drake line about, you know, she's going to be upset if she keeps scrolling to the left. She's not prepared for it. Like, if you, you can't let somebody else near your phone because Lord knows what's in there. Are you stupid? Are you dumb? If you have something incriminating on your phone, yes. I mean, for the people who don't cheat, there's really nothing to hide. But what was really interesting in writing this is that so many people found out their partner was cheating because of social media. So I spoke to one gentleman who received a Facebook message from the person his girlfriend was having an affair with. And had he not gotten that Facebook message, he probably would have never have known. So it's really changing, A, how people cheat, but B, how they get caught as well. It was interesting when I read that piece from the New York Post, I hadn't thought about that because, of course, I'm on the up and up. But, you know, like, for example, when you take an Uber, Mm -hmm. you could easily track where that goes. It could, you know, your spouse could easily track, like, well, wait a second, what are you doing in the distillery district? Who do you know over there? And I'd say, well, I'm, you know, I'm just going to the Christmas market and and she's going to call BS on that. So that uh, that's how a person could get caught out. Certainly, you can definitely through apps, but also because there's so many dating apps, it's so easy. So if you're already tempted, you know, to cheat on your partner, you really don't have to look very far. You can download Tinder and you can, or Ashley Madison and go on these sites. So you have access to different people in a way that you didn't really have in the past. So what are you hearing about the ways that people are most commonly caught out? Most commonly, it's through photographic evidence or it's through someone reaching out on social media. So I spoke to a a therapist this morning and he said he has so many female patients who are sent photos from these guys they're having relationships with. And then they realize through reverse image search, which is something I didn't realize people did, that they're in relationships with other women. So say, for example, if you're on Tinder and you have a photo on Tinder of you and I don't know, your dog, you can actually reverse image search that on Google. And if it's linked up to a Facebook account or a Twitter profile and you see that person's in a relationship, all of a sudden you've connected these dots. So there's many methods. I'm... I'm 
Did I, I lose you? I, no, no, I'm lying on the floor right now. I'm just my, that bl- mind blown. I didn't realize you could. So any photo that anybody sends, you could just check to see if that's linked to a social media account somewhere? Yes, and if that social media that account... It doesn't seem fair. Alan, Alan, please stop crying. <laughs> sorry, sorry, how does it work? So yeah, if that if that photo is linked to a public Facebook profile and you see on, you know, Bob's Facebook, there's a photo of him and his girlfriend at the Christmas market and Bob's messaging you, you know, he has some he has some answers some he has to be given. to do. Exactly. Uh, and then what does the therapist say about, you know, I mean obviously I think the emotions are going to be the same no matter how you figure it out, but especially when it comes to the light, you know, in a very public way sometimes. Yeah, it can be devastating. And it's also humiliating. Not only are you discovering you're being cheated on or your partner's cheating on you, you are essentially now in a space where people can find out that information. So what do you do with that? Do you reach out to the person who's having the affair? Do you reach out? There's so many question marks. But I think, he, you know, the biggest advice is confront the person and say, I have evidence that this is happening. And then it's probably time to move on. That's interesting. In doing the uh, the research for this today, I came across, you would not believe how many posts I came across that asked this question, should I stay or should I go after I cheat? Like I, when I plugged it into the old Google machine looking for those statistics that I teed up, I couldn't believe how many articles there were about that. Was there any consensus on... I, you know what? I didn't dig far enough into it. I didn't want to know, I guess. I, I don't know. I think there are, I think that's a big question that's out there. I think it really depends on the situation. You know, for people who are married and have children, there's a lot more at stake. If you've been in a relationship for many years, a sense of betrayal could feel even worse than a, you know, a casual two month relationship. But it is an individual situation. But, you know, I think you have to determine whether or not you can trust someone. And if there's no trust, then it might be time that you find a different partner. And if you had to find out because of Uber or because of some reverse image search, <laughs> that's probably not the best. No, it means they're hiding things. And then what else are they hiding? You know, it raises a lot more questions. Laura Hensley is with Global News. She's an online journalist, and your piece will be online later on today, finding out that you have been cheated on through social media. Laura, always great to have you on the program. Thank you so much. An unusual gift has been delivered to a Kentucky man, and it has now been confiscated. You see, he ordered an air fryer. And I don't know about you, I love the idea of getting them an air fryer, getting a deep fryer for the home. It's always told, you can't have that here, that's too unhealthy. Well, it turns out this Kentucky man, his particular air fryer was really unhealthy because narcotics officers interrupted, or intercepted, pardon me, that air fryer as it's being shipped to, to his home. And when they checked it out, inside they found 20 pounds of meth stuffed inside the fryer. 100,000 bucks worth of drugs, apparently, once it was delivered to the suspect's house. Officers armed with a search warrant intercepted it, arrested him, and he still does not get French fries. From the Newswire, sometimes I love reading the business Newswire just to find out what's going on. Here's something. Farm Boy, Ontario's fastest-growing fresh food retailer, Today announced it will bring its popular fresh market shopping experience to more Ontario communities. I'm reading directly from the press release, as you might know. You know, somebody's getting paid a whole lot of money to write this kind of stuff. And here's where it goes on. Farm Boy co-founder and co-CEO said, quote, Since day one, we have believed 
If we make our customers happy, they come back. This concept has worked for us so far, and we will continue to focus on providing an outstanding customer experience as we grow. This is what grabbed me here. The customer will forever be at the heart of everything we do. That's a lot for a grocery store to ask. I'm, is my heart with you? I'm over here by the Romaine Hearts. Do you have my heart? <laughs> Thank you so much for spending your time with me this afternoon.